0: Welcome to Season 2, of the Acosta Institute podcast. In this season, we curated interviews with nine educators, community leaders, and practitioners who use their deep understanding of trauma to create conditions for collective thriving. We call them Wounded Healers, a concept that finds its roots in both Carl Jung's work and Greek mythology. For Jung, the Wounded Healer represented the sensitivity, and understanding of one's own wounds and how this informs helping others to heal and transform. In this interview, we sit with Dr. Yolanda Sealy Ruiz, poet, award-winning professor at Columbia Teachers College and creator of the Archaeology of Self Racial Literacy Framework.
1: How does healing and education converge? It takes me back to kind of the original definition or purpose of education, which is actually to bring out of darkness into light, right? If you look at the etymology of the word, that's the intention. So for one to be educated, ideally was to move from a space of ignorance or not knowing into a space of enlightenment education. And so when I think about healing, and I think oftentimes when traumas happen to us, whether it's traumas in the classroom or traumas in our lives, what we usually do is sort of suppress it, right? Don't deal with it because it's so hurtful. And the idea of healing, particularly when we talk about trauma, abuses, is to open up space to face it, to recognize how it has impacted your life, to shed light on it, and to move towards in the plan of healing. With it, meaning that when there are certain things that spark that memory, that if you go through a process of healing, uh, it doesn't take you back into a deeper depression or a deeper sadness. You actually can create mechanisms. You've learned, you've educated yourself on how to navigate that pain and that trauma. One needs the other. I think there needs to be an education of the self, an education of your trauma so that you can heal. Growing up in the Bronx, there's a lot of pain in classrooms. You know, teachers, unless you had exceptional teachers, and I had a few, they didn't really believe that we had potential. They really didn't. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, the, the racism that they uh, were whitewashed with, invested in, many of the teachers I had, now that I look back with this knowledge, just came in, got their paychecks, got on their train and went home. And as a result of that lack of belief in black genius, that lack of belief in um, who we are and what we would become, exacts pain. It's violent to have teachers say things to you that insult your soul when you're nine and ten. That's the beginning of that trauma. So when I think about, again, how I came to this, I think, and and of course, poetry, uh, that's part of my mechanism for healing. I write to free and heal myself. That in the writing, in the excavating of these uh, traumas, the writing allows me to work towards my healing. And so if you look at writing as fundamentally connected to classrooms and education as a tool It's a tool that we learn in schools. You learn how to write, to express yourself. It's a natural thing. It's a natural space where, for me as an educator, how can I use my writing? How can I use my knowledge about the genius of Black people and brown people and others as well? How can I use that knowledge toward helping the actual students heal when their souls have been assaulted? And also having the teachers heal. Because if you are thinking that way, you're not free. You're also in bondage. That's also violence for your soul. And as Sister Elder Toni Morrison said, if someone has to be down on their knees for you to feel tall, then there's something wrong with you. So there's this pervasive sickness, and racism is at the root of it. And there's no place that is more evident than in schools, and particularly schools where black and brown children go. Healing is a necessary tool because we know the violence that's happening in those schools. So automatically we know that as a teacher, you need to be some sort of healer. And if you're not healing, you're perpetrating the violence. A lot of times people are in pain in exact pain on one another because we don't have self-knowledge. And I'm talking right here about my black folk. We're not taught how great and genius we are in schools So where are we going to get it, right? Unless you have a parent who is um, conscious, most black and brown children do not get, number one, uh, multiple histories or true histories, and they often get deficit histories of who they are. So for me, once I began to come into consciousness about what it means to be black and my ancestors and their brilliance, the consciousness led to confidence. The confidence leads to like a self-love. So it is possible for me to examine and to have self-love and at the same time recognize my trauma. In fact, my self-love encourages me to recognize my trauma so I can heal it. So it's not an either or, it's a both and. and. And that's what it means to be, I think, the healing wounded or wounded healers. Those who have been wounded, those who have been hurt, understand and and are working towards their healing, understand the importance of doing that healing. And then they want it for others. I want people to be at peace. I want women in particular to feel self-love and to know that they're worthy. That's what I want and I desire. And so if there's any way that I can share my story through writing to get others to think about, well, how have I treated myself in that relationship? When did I express self-loathing? Just to get the love or affection of a man or another woman? And how do I interrupt that? And if somewhere in my writing I offer a portal for someone to see that, that's the work of a a wounded healer, I think. And we're constantly healing, it's not a destination. I mean, I have a, I call him my play nephew. He went to India for about a year to do like archaeology of self, find out who he is. He had been in the foster care system, actually been in 30 homes, experienced a lot of abuse. And he's only like 28 years old, so he's still unraveling this. But When he came back from India, he decided that what he wanted to do was do meditation and mindfulness with children. And so what we are seeing, I mean, his full-time job is outside of working in a cafe during the school year is he meditates and engages with mindfulness with kids in kindergarten all the way up to eighth grade. So the fact that that exists in a department of education is beautiful and it's new. But this started about a decade ago where you began to see yoga uh, being offered in schools and not really offered where you would have artists. You know how you have teaching artists? You have yoga specialists or yogis come in and engage students particularly students in um, high stress, high needs areas. So there has been a shift, but you know, watch and be careful because racist systems always correct themselves. So if the yoga and the mindfulness really begins, unfortunately to serve teachers and students, well, you'll begin to see a cut of programs. So that's why it's important that we can't rely on programs. We can't rely on like outside folks. That's the internal work that every teacher needs to do. Like get in contact with your own trauma, take on this idea of wounded healer so that you will not continue to exact harm to children. And then you have to wait for the yogi to come in on Monday or Wednesday and get the kids back in alignment. Like your goal should be, how am I seeing the full humanity of every child in my classroom, and what in my practice is allowing them to flourish towards their own healing, towards their full humanity. If I think about my family, I grew up in a very violent home. My father was very violent. So it's not like that peace was cultivated in the family. And the family situation, it can go either way. It could be so much violence that it drives people towards the desire of peace, which is probably why I'm on this journey still. Or it could be so much violent that it actually begets more violence. So it is the family's role, and it's so important, and this is where we get into the systems of racism and classism and sexism, because the way parents have been treated by schools and society, they often enact that way with their children, unless there's an interruption. And oftentimes, let's say in Black communities, the interruption often comes through the church. It comes through some sort of spiritual experiences that you realize you need to raise your children differently than how you were raised. So in some ways that that probably happened to me. I think that I saw so much violence that I desired and craved peace. But this is a lifelong journey. I mean, it took me 30 something years to get to this. I mean, I was in corporate America for 13 years. What the hell was I doing there? Making companies more money. But I knew at 13 that I was meant to be a teacher and I just... Started going to school while I was working. I didn't know how I was doing it, but I knew I had to move towards a different path. So, a lot of times these things are subconscious, but you also have to kind of surrender to it. So, go back to school, you know, go to that kind of healing class, just follow it because eventually it's going to be made plain. And I think that when I think about who I've become as a teacher, I've always loved my students. Even as a high school teacher, love had to be fundamental. And I think because I grew up in somewhat of a violent neighborhood, not violence was there, but I loved growing up where I grew up. experienced love. And I knew that a lot of my classrooms, they didn't love us. So critical love was a foundation for me as a teacher. A lot of times you don't get it at home. You may not even get it in your classrooms, but that doesn't mean that you can't be a teacher who critically loves. And you know, we always say we came from kings and queens. And we did, we did. Uh, We also came from slaveholders and other things, but there's so much black genius. There is nothing that we have not done. Photography, music, dance. And I'm talking about centuries back when you don't know that about yourself and your legacy and your ancestry. There's anger and there's the space where self-hate can just kind of latch on and flourish. So the first job is to plant the seeds of self-knowledge, to use that same metaphor, to water it. And that's the first step. A lot of young people who are trying to figure out exactly who they are, they don't have a lot of self-knowledge. They don't have ancestral knowledge. That's what we need to begin. And the fact that they're young adults, mentally and emotionally, they're ready for it. More so, I would say, than, let's say, our elementary. So it's actually um, a ripe and wonderful time to begin to open up that consciousness, which will be the beginning of self-healing. It's not just one path. You also have to create safe and brave environments for them to take risk, for them to talk about some of the risky things that they're doing that comes out of sometimes self-loathing. So there has to be a space where there's conversation. First build self-knowledge, then creating a space, whether it's through photography or art. I love using the arts. Where they begin to explore some of those stories that they have deeply embedded so there has to be this excavation process but it's all towards self-knowledge leaning towards self-love and consciousness and that's perfect for the high school age perfect once you start giving a different lens and a frame it's the gift that keeps on giving so i wonder if let's say through art or photography how do we introduce centuries-old or decade-old photographers. I was looking at this brother, his photography thing, where he took pictures of people in the 1980s and then photographed people 30 years later. So the point I'm making is it has to be something relevant to their lives. So I'm thinking about Bronx. I'm thinking about hip-hop. I'm thinking about some of the archives of bringing that and then also pairing it with stuff from Detroit, Or stuff from Ghana, like in a series of photographs and art telling the story of genius. But we have to make it relevant to them. So, how do you, and this is a good teacher, how do you find that hook to have them invest in the history that you're trying to teach them? Once you have them hooked in, everything else is there. But you have to be conscious as a teacher, you have to know the history. Most of these white teachers. They don't know our history. I'm not blaming them because they weren't taught it either. They were taught this kind of Eurocentric way and they teach what they've been taught. So that's the interruption part. To recognize we are in a school system that is not teaching the history, the genius, the brilliance of black children. I'm going to be that teacher that does it. What do I need to excavate? And what do I need to learn so I then can teach? And that's how you change a system. I mean, think about moments in our lives that are completely chaotic and stressful, and then think about moments that are peaceful, whether that's holding your newborn and the house is quiet. When we're at peace, I don't know, for me, my brain is activated in a whole different way. I'm more creative. I feel the power of God within me. I'm more appreciative. There's something up for me about peace and silence, and because we live in a, in a world that is based on war and conquering, what would it be like if we lived in peace? Because we know what this gives. What has that brought us? Racism, sexism, homophobia, hate, killings. And what does peace offer? When people say peace be still, it offers the alternative to all of that. So that's the importance of starting. And that what I've been trying to get schools to do is Especially since post-pandemic, can you please open up a meditation room? Can for high schoolers? Can you program in elementary, middle schools? Can you program meditation and yoga into the kids' like programs? Can you open up a space for teachers that is not just a teachers' lounge? Is actually a space of meditation. They can go in with the lights off for ten minutes because people need to have quiet to gather themselves. If we're constantly moving in chaos and fast pace, how will, I don't know how we do it. How are we generating ideas? How are we seeing that there's an alternative way to be? And that's the one thing the COVID in some ways I think taught us that when you sit still, you have a whole new perspective. That's what peace brings. For me, peace equals stillness and stillness equals an opportunity to do kind of some deep self-reflection. And if it's good enough for those folks, in these fortune 500 companies what do you think they get educated in schools start with education that is going to be what changes our world if we can make those changes within schools we'd have a whole different kind of world some people already get it many of our children don't and we deserve it and we're genius I live in a space of hope. I mean, that is education, actually, right? That's why I left corporate to be in a space where I think I could affect change. So, what's my hope? My hope is that people continue to interrogate their racism. My hope is that what we've seen from COVID nineteen and what was so ex- what we knew for four centuries, but some people came into consciousness January 6th and during the Trump years, that people continue to deepen that uh, knowledge and get themselves out of the prison of racism and sexism and homophobia that they're in. That's my hope for the world. How I intend to contribute to that is the work that I'm doing in school systems. So some people call it diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging work. Some call it anti-racist work. I call it work of humanity. I'm trying to get folks, particularly teachers, particularly teachers of black and brown kids, to see their full humanity. And when they can do that, then they can see the full humanity in themselves. So I guess I'm trying to be a warrior for humanity. What's for me is to continue to live in this way because life will always be happening. There will always be unexpected things. And particularly as a parent and as my daughter gets older and goes out into the world, I don't want to worry. I don't want to have that kind of energy around her. I want her to move in knowledge and safety, security, and peace. So where I am right now, I just hope that I can deepen this. I'm certainly midlife. I, am, I continue to be open to love, right? That's the beautiful thing. So I'd like to be in a nice, loving, kind relationship where that person recognizes their power and their love and their peace and that we can have a peaceful, loving relationship. And I say this to my mother and my daughter all the time. I just want peace. I'm going to continue to live my life of consciousness of love, of truth telling and of finding peace. That's what's for Yoli.
0: Thank you for listening to season two. We invite you to reflect on the many ways in which you are a wounded healer yourself. We wanna thank Paper Monday for helping us curate these interviews and the photographs that accompany them. We wanna thank DK and Joe Barat for the sound engineering and thank Maria Tan at the house of thriving for co-producing this season. Stay tuned.